in a series that we're calling Be the Countercultural Church, in which we're comparing and contrasting the priorities and the values of our culture with the values and priorities of the Bible, or more specifically, the values and priorities of the gospel. Last week, we started kind of a mini-series in the bigger series on hope. And the reason is, at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul gives us kind of a threefold measure by which we can see if we're growing and developing as God wants us to. He said, faith, hope, and love. We regularly talk about faith. We had a fairly long series, mini-series on love, and so now we're focusing on hope. And if you remember last week, we said, hope has three components. First of all, imagination. You picture a preferred future. There's a picture in your mind, in your imagination. You then desire it, you want it, and you trust that it will actually come about. Three components. And so my hopes were fulfilled this morning. I stopped at Starbucks, got my coffee. I finished it already. There was imagination, there was desire, and there was trust that has come to fruition. Well, this morning, we're going to look at a case study. We kind of ended last week by looking at a case study from the New Testament, Luke 24. This morning, we're going to look at a case study from the Old Testament. A little bit longer, but I think you can actually see in this case study, God coming alongside someone who is hopeless. They're kind of in the pit of despair, and God seeks to raise them up and fill them with hope again. So if you have your Bibles, your phone, your iPad, whatever, you can turn to 1 Kings 18. We're not going to read too much from that, but the story is 18 and 19. But before we get there, you have to understand two things. I was going to say, you need to learn two vocabulary words, hermeneutics and hagiography. I'm not going to say that, though. But you do need to learn how to read the Bible appropriately. Here's what I mean by that. We don't read the Bible the way we read an Aesop's fable. You read an Aesop fable trying to find the hero, and then you tease out a moral at the end. That's not how the Bible's put together. The Bible's not a collection of little antidotes that we read and then put together morals as we lift up certain characters as heroes. Every story in the Bible has God as the hero. God often comes alongside very flawed, failing people, empowers them, builds them up, and amazingly uses them by his grace to accomplish pieces of his mission. So God's the hero, and he uses people that are failures and they're greatly flawed, ambiguous characters, but God comes along and fuses them with power, strength by his grace, and continues his story in that way. Well, that leads us to the second thing, and that is the Bible is not hagiography, it's biography. And here's what hagiography is. Hagiography is the story of a person that's airbrushed. It's an election season, so you'll see lots of airbrushing going on. What do they do? They airbrush all of the negative characteristics, all of the flaws, all of the failures, so you're left with basically a positive depiction. That's hagiography. Only the good things are mentioned. The bad's not mentioned. Interestingly, amazingly, if you know ancient literature, the Bible doesn't contain hagiography. The Bible gives us full biography. We learn lots of very ambiguous characters. In fact, the more we know of people in the Bible, the more we know of their flaws and their failures. 
There are only a couple characters in the Bible where we're not let in on their failures and foibles. And almost always, that's because we don't have too much information about them. Even the characters that we look to, David, Solomon, we look to as paragons of faith. David, a man after God's own heart, highly flawed. Biography, not hagiography. Well, now to our story. Let me introduce you to the main characters. Based on what I just said, God's the main character in the story. God's the hero. And he's going to use a very flawed man to bring about and continue his purpose. But the first human character you need to be aware of is Ahab. Ahab is the king of Israel. Now, for those of you that uh, don't know your kind of Old Testament history, here's how it goes. The people of God, Israel, were, they were united under um, Saul, David, Solomon. But after Solomon, the kingdom is divided. The northern tribes, they become Israel. The southern tribes become Judah. Ahab is a king of Israel in the north. There was never a good king in the north, ever. They were all evil. They were terrible. And Ahab is the worst of the worst. Uh, you can read, a, if you go back a little bit in 1 Kings, Ahab is described, there had never arisen anybody in Israel quite as bad as Ahab. He's terrible. Second person you need to know is Jezebel. They can tell you probably heard that name now and then. She's not a good character either. Jezebel is Ahab's wife. But she's not from Israel. She's actually from Sidon. She's a Gentile. She was the daughter of the king of Sidon. Now, the reason Ahab would marry a daughter of another king was purely political. And so Ahab is expanding his power and influence. He marries Jezebel, brings her to Israel. And you got this important. Jezebel is a Baal worshiper. Baal is just kind of a, another name for a false god, right? So Baal, Baal was worshipped by the Sidonians. Jezebel is an ardent follower of Baal. Now, this is going to become important later. Remember, Baal was seen as the weather god. Baal was the god of the storm. So if you needed it to rain to grow your crops, all those people back then, they would pray to Baal, the weather god. Remember that. It's going to become important in a little bit. To show you how not just them despicable, but how stupid Ahab was, he brings Jezebel to Israel to live with him in the palace, and he puts Jezebel, this ardent Baal worshiper, she's now in charge of all religion in Israel. She becomes the uh, minister of religion for Israel. She sets out very systematically to kill all the true prophets. True story, you check it out. She sets out there, and she kills hundreds of them. She's beginning to wipe them away. She wants worship of God to disappear, so worship of Baal then is kind of the only religion left. All right, you got Ahab, Jezebel. Third character you need to know is Elijah, Elijah. Now, uh, you probably know for that, he's probably a good guy because uh, Ahab and Jezebel, they're not good. Well, the good character is going to be Elijah. Elijah is a prophet of God, but as you might guess, He's kind of the sworn enemy of Ahab and Jezebel, and they're the ones in power. They're the ones in authority. So they're kind of the main characters. You got it. God's the hero. We're going to see how that works out. We got Ahab, Jezebel. Uh, we got Elijah. He's a good guy, right? They're the characters. Well, here's the plot. As you might guess, God's not going to let his people in Israel continue to wander on this path far away from him. 
So he sends Elijah on this mission to go to Ahab. Now, put yourself in Elijah's shoes. You'd be shaking in your boots, right? You go to Ahab, the king who's been allowing his wife to kill all these prophets. You go to Ahab and tell him there's not going to be rain or dew for years. Now, remember, Baal's the weather god. God says, you go tell Ahab and Jezebel, who worships the weather god, let's see who's really in charge of the weather here. So Elijah says, Ahab, there's not going to be rain, there's not going to be dew for years. I mean, we don't have rain for a couple of weeks. Everybody starts fretting, right? For years. Well, as you might guess, uh, that creates quite a mess. There's famine, people are dying, there's starvation, animals are dying, the economy is in the toilet, everything is a mess. Elijah is sent away uh, because if he was found, they would surely kill him. God kind of sends him away. He's taken care of graciously. That's another story. Well, anyway, now there's, God says to Elijah, okay, time to go back. You need to go to Ahab. Talk about courage, right? You go to Ahab, tell him God's ready for a contest. If you're hurting enough by now, no, no rain, no dew for years, right? Everything, the economy's in a, in, a, in a mess. Tell Ahab to bring the prophets of Baal to Mount Carmel for this contest. Now, there are lots of prophets of Baal, right? I mean, Jezebel imported some. There were some being developed and trained, you know, discipleship in Baal school, right? all this kind of stuff. So on Mount Carmel, here's the con- a very unfair fight. This is not fair. On the one side, 450 prophets of Baal plus 400 prophets of Asherah. That's, that's another idol, right? 850 prophets of false gods versus Elijah. That's not a fair fight because uh, Elijah's on God's side. 850 against God, that's not a fair fight at all. So they go to Mount Carmel to kind of have this out. So Elijah says, I'm... Well, Baal, you all, you know, serve Baal. And Baal's the weather god. So here's the contest. You guys build an altar. You know, you got a whole lot, you got lots of construction workers over here. You guys build an altar, take one of these bulls, a sacrifice, you know, kind of cut it up. That's how they worship then. Put it onto the altar. No matches, no kerosene, no lighter fluid, no gasoline, nothing, just prayer. Baal's the weather god. What's a little lightning to the weather god, right? Send a little lightning, kind of, you know, strike the bull that's on the altar, a little bit of wood underneath, and incinerate that stuff. Well, the prophets of Baal start. It says in 18, early in the morning they start. They start praying. By lunchtime, they're union prophets. They need a break for lunch. Um, By lunchtime, Elijah starts trash talking. It's really cool. You can read it for yourself. Elijah says, hmm, maybe Baal's busy. Maybe he took a trip. Maybe, he actually says this, maybe he's on the toilet and can't hear you. Where is the weather god? They now dance around. They are frantic, these 850 of them dancing around. They're cutting themselves. They're beating themselves, right? They are lashing. Baal, please answer, please answer. Elijah's just sitting there, all the people of Israel surrounding this big contest. Nothing, nothing. Elijah then, uh, in the evening, it says at the time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah walks up and says, uh, okay, you guys had your chance. 
stand back. He then takes 12 stones. Now remember, Israel separated from Judah. 12 stones to remind him of the 12 original tribes. All by himself. There's no other prophets of God. He builds an altar out of the 12 stones. He takes some wood and puts it on top. He puts the bull on top of that. And then he says to some of the attendants, go over there and fill those barrels with water. Dump it on at a sacrifice. Dump it on again. Three times, dump it on again. In fact, it says there was so much water that the water flowing over the sacrifice filled the giant moat that was around, that was around the uh, altar. It's soaking wet. It's dripping. The water's there. And Elijah very quietly, respectfully, patiently says, uh, God, would you be so gracious as to show these people watching today who the real God is? Show them who really controls the weather. And without much fanfare, no dancing around, no cutting himself, none of that stuff, lightning falls from the sky. It consumes the sacrifice and the wood and incinerates the stones until there's nothing but a big pit. And the people cry out, the Lord, he is God, the Lord. Yeah, you bet they're saying it, right? God may have another lightning bolt sent down for what they've been doing. Um, you know, we could spend a lot of time just reflecting on that, but we're mainly going to talk about the next chapter. But let me put a little pause there and ask you a question. Every time I read that incident or think about it, this question always forms in my head. You notice the difference between religion and Christianity, or religion and true faith? In religion, who does the heavy lifting? The followers do, right? They're praying frantically. They're beating themselves. They're dancing around. They're going through all the motions. They're jumping through the hoops. Somehow trying to eke a little blessing. Somehow getting this God to answer their prayer. Somehow twisting God's arm to give them what they want. They're doing all the heavy lifting. In Christianity, who did the heavy lifting? Not us. We did nothing. Elijah doesn't do anything. He just says, Lord, by your grace, would you show them who you are? You know, we should probably take a little pause there. Do you have any bales in your life? Any things that you're putting your hopes in and you're feeling like you've got to do the heavy lifting? You're jumping through all the hoops. You're putting off the, you know, you're checking the list. You're staying away from this, doing that. Somehow thinking that you can make God your debtor. Somehow thinking you're going to be able to pull this off. That's how religion works. That's not, that's not how Christianity works. In Christianity, God does the heavy lifting. Jesus already did the heavy lifting. It's in admitting our failures and our flaws, coming to God and by his grace, he uses us and touches us. The heavy lifting's not ours. The heavy lifting's already been done. Jesus did it. Now it's just faithfully following what he already started. But before we get to the hope lessons, here's another question. How do you think Elijah was feeling at the end of 1 Kings 18? My guess is he's flying high, right? I mean, he is a national superstar. He defeats 850 false prophets. The people are all saying, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. What do you think his expectations are? I don't know, but I can venture a pretty good guess. My guess is he thinks Ahab is now going to repent and become a true follower of God. Don't you think? My guess is 
Either Jezebel's going to be killed, sent back to Sidon, or miraculously, she'll become a God-fearer and worship God. Wouldn't that be an amazing, miraculous story we have in the Bible? He has these expectations. The people will turn back to God. Ahab will repent. Jezebel will either be done away with. She'll become a godfather. Oh, God, thanks for this great miracle. We're on the highway now, the way it should go. His hopes are high. Oh, yeah, let's um, read some of chapter 19. So if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. If not, just uh, listen as I read and kind of be amazed. Elijah tells Ahab to go to Jezreel because the rain's coming now. And so Ahab gets into a chariot and he's racing to Jezreel. It's about 15 miles away. We're told that uh, I guess Elijah is feeling a burst of adrenaline. He beats the chariot to Jezreel. He races. Look, I know people that can run 15 miles. I don't don't know too many people that can beat horses in in a 15-mile race. He beats him. He gets to Jezreel before Ahab. Why? He wants to see Ahab repent. He wants to, you know, stand on the stairs of the art museum and say, yes, I'm victorious, just like Rocky, right? I won. Yeah, but here's what happens. When Ahab tells Jezebel what happened, beginning in verse 2 of 19, here's what happens. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah, but it's not a message of repentance. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them, dead. Elijah, 24 hours, you'll be dead. Elijah was afraid. He just courageously stood before 850 prophets and a lunatic king. Now he's afraid of a queen He was afraid, and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. Now, okay, Israel's in the north, Carmel's in the north. He runs through Judah to the south. Beersheba is the southernmost border. That's the border town, right? Right before you get to Mexico and Texas. He's leaving the country. He leaves his servant. He quits his job. God, I thought there was going to be repentance. I thought Ahab would come to you. I thought Jezebel would be done away with. You know what? I can't trust you. You've let down my hopes. I'm done. I'm quitting. I'm not only leaving my job. I'm leaving my country. I'm no longer an Israelite. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then laid down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time, touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb. That's just another name for Sinai. That's where God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. Then he went into a cave and spent the night. The word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. 
The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They torn down your orders, um, altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Yeah, same story. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Go to Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel, king of Aram. And there are some other orders given. So what happens? Elijah quits his job. He leaves the country, takes off. And he finally is so exhausted, he lays down, and an angel shows up. Well, you know what's amazing? When the angel shows up, this angel doesn't do what angels normally do. This angel does not say, fear not, Elijah. The angel doesn't say that. The angel does not say, I bring you good tidings of great. The angel doesn't say that. The angel doesn't say, repent. The angel says, take a nap and have a snack. In fact, the angel cooks, right? And the angel gives them, this is the first incident of angel food cake, right? The angel made the cake and gave angel food first time. I don't like angel food cake. Maybe Elijah did. So isn't that amazing? The angel doesn't show up with orders, good tidings of great joy. Repent for your sin. To fear not. The angel shows up and says, Elijah, take a nap. Eat a snack. You know what that means when you're hopeless and in despair? Don't underestimate your tiredness and hunger. Sometimes what you really need to kind of be filled with hope again is to take a nap and have a snack. You know, there's a, I, I read an article a couple weeks ago from um, uh, the Harvard Business Review, and it was all about Zoom fatigue. You ever get Zoom fatigue? And here's what it said. When you stare at someone's face or faces hour after hour, and you see your own little face down in the corner, you can become exhausted sitting doing nothing. I've, I've got Zoom fatigue, I think. You know what you need after a lot of Zoom? You need to take a nap and have a snack. God meets our felt needs. Look, God built us. He built us not just as souls and spirits. He built us with bodies. And if your body's tired, if your body's hungry, don't expect your soul's going to be buoyant and you're going to be able to soar with lots of hope. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap and have a snack. But that's not Elijah's main problem. Elijah's main problem is not that he's tired. He is tired. I mean, think about it. He was on Horeb. Imagine adre adrenaline flowing through his veins as he stood against 850 prophets. He saw the, he ran 15 miles ahead of the horses. He's now running away, quits his job. He's exhausted. God says, take a nap, lay down, take a nap. No commands, no repent, do this. Have a snack. He's hungry. Felt needs. But what's his real need? Well, Elijah um, struggles with the same thing I often struggle with. 
And when we have this problem, I guarantee you, your hope will diminish. Here's the problem. Elijah put his expectations above God's revelation. He put what he thought should happen above what God said would happen. And when you have your little set of expectations, look, I'm not saying it's wrong to have those expectations, but can your expectations be vetoed by God? Elijah had these expectations. Ahab's going to repent. Jezebel's going to come to her senses. Hey, we're going to lick this thing. But when his expectations weren't met, he's in the pit of despair. Hope is gone. And the same for us. When our expectations take precedent over God's revelation, you're setting yourself up for hopelessness and despair. What's the cure? Alignment. Make sure God's revelation trumps your expectations. Read through the Gospels. Isn't that the normal problem the disciples have? They have their set of expectations of who Jesus should be, what Jesus should do, and are usually ticked off and hopeless when Jesus isn't following through. Their expectations are put above what Jesus is saying. They're put above the Gospel. Make sure you have alignment. The Gospel above our expectations. That's where hope is found. God's promises never fail. God's plan will come to fruition. And if our hope and trust is in God's revelation and the plan of the gospel, our hopes will never, sure, we're gonna go through difficulties. Sometimes our expectations won't be met, but the big picture of God's promises and the gospel stand forever. I was thinking about Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. It's kind of interesting that Elijah ran there. That's where God appeared to Moses. Maybe he's hoping God will show up again. But you know what Mount Sinai is a reminder of? Mount Sinai is a reminder of our failure, right? God gives the law. We fail at keeping any piece of it. If we really understood each of the Ten Commandments, every one of us would be guilty of breaking every one. God gives the law in Sinai. We are absolute failures before the law. What's Mount Sinai? The mountain of failure. But we know more of the story than Elijah knew, didn't he? Because there's another mountain. Not Mount Sinai. Mount Calvary. That's the mountain of forgiveness. And our failures that uh, that Sinai reminds us of are all forgiven by God's grace at Calvary. And therefore, we have hope for the next mountain, the mountain of Zion, which is heaven forever and ever. We have hope that Elijah couldn't have. God did bolster his uh, faith a little bit and build up his hope. said, Elijah, take a nap, have a snack, and get back to work. Your failures aren't final. I will forgive them. We know better about the forgiveness. We know better about second chances because Mount Sinai's failure is swallowed up in the victory and forgiveness of Mount Calvary and the promises of Mount Zion are on the way. We live among the mountains. Therefore, we have hope. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this story. A story of a pretty flawed, failing prophet but one that gets turned around and made right 
as you show up in your grace and minister the way you only can. And Lord, we give you thanks this morning that we know a whole lot more of the story than Elijah did. We know of Mount Sinai and we know something of your law and we know of our failures keenly. But Lord, rather than run from them, help us to admit them and acknowledge them. Find our hope not in Sinai and our ability to do and do the heavy lifting. Help us to find our hope in Mount Calvary, the mountain where Jesus did the heavy lifting. So there's none left for us. And help us from this day till the next mountain, Zion, to be filled with hope. And help us to learn regularly what hope is, putting our expectations, demoting them under your revelation. Help us to live in that hope today and forever. We pray in the name of Jesus who delivered it to us.